Is it too soon to start thinking about Christmas? Probably. Is it too soon to start thinking about Christmas presents? Probably not. So, if you're looking for a Christmas present for your smart, angsty, sort of goth teenager, why not grab them a copy of my book, Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight? It's a novel about two teenage detectives trying to solve a series of murders, one particularly bloody summer in San Francisco. It's like Rick and Morty meets Sherlock Holmes. It's super fast, it's super dark, and there's ninjas in Tom Ford suits, organ removal, Russian swinging cleavers, heavy metal, and other weird night things. And guess what? It's out in paperback, which means it'll fit perfectly inside a stocking. You know, the the ones that you hang on the, what is it called? The hearth. Yes, I'm Jewish and I have no idea what will fit in a stocking or, for that matter, what a hearth is. Uh, but give it a try. Buy the book and shove it into that stocking and let's see what happens. Anyway, back to Halloween. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Roaming in darkness, clinging to see, and My guest today on the program, Kira. Let me tell you a little bit about Kira. All right, so the music that you just heard was intimate and meditative, but the musician behind that song I just played got her start with a band that was literally the exact opposite. Kira was the bassist for the legendary Black Flag from 1984 to 1986 a ferocious outfit that played a physical and fiery brand of blistering and punishing punk rock. Kira was no stranger to getting in the van and tearing from town to town with her bandmates. After leaving Black Flag, the UCLA-educated Rosler, who had also played with DC3, The Monsters, The Visitors, and Twisted Roots, formed the bass-led duo DOS with her husband, Mike Watt. Doss put out a couple of great albums, and then Rosler kind of retreated a bit from the music industry, focusing instead on her day job as dialogue editor in the film industry. With a few Emmys under her belt and contributing to two Academy Award-winning films, Kira has done dialogue editing on Game of Thrones, Joker, Mad Max Fury Road, and A Star is Born. So how does someone that busy have time to put out a record? She'll explain. But before she does, let me say this. The album Kira is an intricate and instrumentally complex album. With vocals that bring to mind a blend of Kim Deal and Hope Sandoval, and bass-fueled arrangements 
that provide a perfect foundation for the compositions, Kira is a moving and stirring debut. Let's talk to her, shall we? This is me and Kira having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. cannot complain i uh, i've been busy uh but the alternative you know isn't necessarily a good thing and um you know i've been doing a certain amount of press for this new record which is exciting and um playing my bass guitar like always and spending time with my dogs uh, and I've had a little break here uh, from my day job, so I'm actually starting Monday to do a little more of um, of that. So, so we'll see how that goes. Keeping that ball in the air. Too. Yeah, it's an important ball to keep in the air. Well, yes, it is. Um, there's a strike looming, but hopefully they'll work it out. And a lot of you are independent. Is that correct? We are freelance. Um, yeah. Yes. So there isn't a, a studio or a shop that necessarily is loyal to me or vice versa. I get hired by sound supervisors and they can be based wherever. So um, so you have to it, it makes you keep your people skills up. You have to build relationships and all that. And how is your general anxiety around such things? Are you are you are you pretty mellow about these things, or do you or do you worry? Which things? Uh, an impending strike. Oh, uh, you know, uh, luckily, uh, I am not living paycheck to paycheck, and uh, and and I'll be fine. Uh, so so that's the good news um, for me. But um, but I try to be aware that most people are are living a lot closer to the bone and um and and i i did take this little period off so it's a little stressful just that thing we were saying about the wanting to you know keep your relationships and stuff i mean covid made it hard enough to keep your relationships we used to see each other around at the lots and stuff so it's it's luckily though i'm at a point in my career where people have I have a reputation, if you will. People know who I am, and it's and and it's somewhat of a small community. And so, if I reach out and say, "Hey, I'm available. Is there work out there?" But I have a show that's now pushed. It was supposed to start at the beginning of October. It's now pushed all the way to the beginning of January. And then, of course, if there's a strike, who knows? Yeah, I mean, who who really know? exactly? The future remains unwritten. Um, there is a, my feeling about you, and tell me if I'm wrong, is you're one of those people that is incredibly productive when you, when you have a lot going on, right? When you're, when you're impacted, when your schedule is jammed, you operate at a very high frequency. Is that, is that correct? I, well, I am, I'm pretty organized um, and I do tend to 
uh, plan, possibly too much. Uh, and therefore, you know, I, um, I do sort of have my, my days mapped out in order to be productive, but then what defines productivity? Productive might be that I'm going to, you know, take a power walk or, you know, take care of my dogs in some way, go to the vet or whatever, you know, so it's not all necessarily um, productive in the real world. It's just, um, I try to be, I try to stay on top of those things that have to be done here in my little tiny sphere. But when I'm working, I have to be super organized because it's, you know, 10 hours a day is basically what's expected. And so if you have any life things happening at the same time, um, it does get to be, uh, you know, I try to say no to everything outside of work when I'm working, but, but you can't. So you do have to stay particularly organized. So, so you are correct. I try to be productive. I just don't know that always other people um, would notice what I was productive <laughs> right. with. How is your ability to say no? Is it better as I mean, for me, as I've gotten older, it's become something I've been very good at in the in the old days, meaning like before I was 50, I couldn't say no, it wouldn't come out of my mouth. No, I, I, absolutely correct. I, I, early days in my um, post sound career, um, there was a fear because you're freelance. I mean, I would never say no. And, and I would stress if I was between jobs and um, and I would do anything to, you know, sort of prove myself because I felt like I was still sort of trying to gain that, that thing that I feel like now I've accomplished, that there's somewhat of a reputation, that I have a network of people that I can. It's weird. In this industry, there's what I call benevolent competition. So all of the people who do what I do, we're very networked. And if, if someone needs work if, or if someone asks me hey are you available and I'm not I'll suggest someone who I know who does what I do so we're all helping each other a lot of times getting the work and a, and a lot of my work will come from a referral from another person who does exactly what I do so that's unusual right in, in other areas there may be a lot more like malevolent competition yes but no, here it's very much those of us who feel that we're good at what we do we want to suggest to someone who needs help hey this person is really good and they may be available so uh, so that's worked to my advantage to sort of get into that um, that zone but it took many years and I think you're right there's a there's an age element to it where I'm not you know work just isn't the only thing that matters in the world right where it felt like it did for a long time well and I think people people when they hear that they think when oh saying no like someone says do you want to go do this and you say no but no also means no to this relationship is not a good relationship for me right and I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Um, or no, this situation is not, is a situation I need to remove myself from. Um, well, I was just saying to my husband, look, I'm, I know that I'm this way. I'm very greedy about my time when I'm going to be working or when I'm working. So even if it's the weekend and I'm not scheduled to work, I won't necessarily take on a social activity, which then will burn that little pocket of time that maybe I can just rest or spend some time with the dogs or play music or whatever. So, so I'm cautious not to overcommit myself 
um, because of the demands, um, they feel like they're big enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they certainly are, of course. <laughs> um, somebody asked me yesterday if I, when I'm teaching my college students, what, cause I'm a writer, what happens to my writing? And I, and I thought, you know, it's funny. It does kind of suffer when I'm teaching writing. I'm not really doing a lot of writing. I'm thinking about it, but I'm not really doing it as much. And I wonder for you, when you're working those 10 hour days, and then you think about your own independent music that you want to create and that you have created, how is that balance for you? Absolutely. What you're saying is true. When I'm working a long day, um, I know that afterwards I'm, I'm going to be in no shape to do anything. I'm not going to pick up my bass guitar after work. So um, when I'm working, if I play, it's going to be early in the morning. And I've come to, to utilize that early morning time very effectively. In other words, I will sit down. I generally have about 20 songs in, the, in some stage of being written, either just a, uh, an idea all the way to um, kind of close to being done. Um, but I have this set of things so, so I can make use of a half hour. I could pick up one of those songs. Where was I at? Oh, I'm working on the second baseline for this. And, and maybe just play an idea record that idea just so that I'll remember, you know, yeah. and utilize that half hour so that then the next time I can come back and maybe I've pushed it along. And that's been my mode for, for a lot of years. I, um, one of the things I love about what I do though, is that I work project to project. So there are holes between projects where I get to bump up the music time. Um, and I take full advantage of that. Yeah. But, um, but it's part of the time management. It's part of why my uh, my music is created ninety percent virtually. In other words, I what contributions I get from others, I send the songs to them, and they do their parts. Not at six thirty in the morning like I did mine, but at their convenience, and they send things back. And so much of uh, of this work has been pieced together from people who are sort of spread out. I, the guitar player is in Ohio. I have a drummer who does what I do, uh, friend, and he um, he's amazing, and he's been contributing on on a lot of the work, the music I've been doing. Um, but he has a studio and he does his work work and he does his drumming and records that and he so he's all set up to to do that and then ship it back to me and then to do the final polishing I always go to kitten robot studio and work with my brother um, Paul who helps me to take the song to some sort of logical conclusion <laughs> but it's it's a very virtual process and and the very and one of the big effects of that is just simply because I work at 6 30 in the morning and nobody wants to do that with me no no it's it's it, I know it doesn't sound very rock and roll to be to do it at 6 30 in the morning unless you oh, never wow. slept the night before oh well look I work 10 12 hours a day I'm gonna be a zombie afterwards I have no creative juices left nor any physical strength left now that's not when it's gonna happen for me right Right. So you recognize like, when will I be able to do this at an optimum place? And that is the time you've chiseled out for yourself. Yeah. I want, if I want to be creative, I'm not going to be pre creative when I'm exhausted. That for me, that's just what's true. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's been good to um, to develop that uh, skill set, and then I then I with if I have a good chunk of time, I it's like this luxury where I can right. I can sit down and work on a song as long as I feel like it today. You know? Right, right. And the and the alternative, if you don't compartmentalize your time when you're a busy person, the alternative is then you don't do the stuff that you want to do creatively. You can't. You're not going to get it done. Well, right. I mean, if I go, I will literally, if I go two weeks without playing my bass, I will literally start to, to feel depressed, not exactly depressed, but it's like, there's something wrong. It's subconscious. Something is wrong. Some part of me isn't happening, you know, and is being suppressed. And when I get super busy at work and the hours go up, even from that, that can happen. And, um, and I'm not a happy camper when I'm not getting, as you say, that balance when I'm not seeing my dogs and taking, taking walks with my dogs. I mean, I make, my dogs have very good lives. They, they have caregivers that take care of them and take them out. So they are not suffering without me. I'm suffering without those walks and, and, and that time and that connection, you know, that's just part of the balancing act is, is finding time with my husband and my dogs, as well as, um, as with my base, it's right here next to me. I, I, yeah, I figured it would be, (laughs) I mean, it's my desk and then my base. It has to be there. It's, It's one of those things also, I imagine for someone who is a runner, if they don't run for two weeks, the universe is not in balance you know exactly exactly i'm sure there are many skill sets or or creative artistic interests that um that are like that painting you know take your pick where um you can't even you don't even necessarily know and then you suddenly will go well of course well of course i know what's wrong but it's not like a conscious thing i mean there are times when i i did once write a poem about walking away from my base to head to work but you know for the most part it's a subconscious thing it's not you know you're just doing what you got to do right well yeah and i think it's also you know an, an artist who doesn't have an outlet is an unhappy artist right well, right if i can't express my uh emotions my my sadness my joy my anger my pain if i can't express that on my base, I'm likely to express it with some person that I shouldn't express it with too, because I need that outlet. That's how I express myself. So, and I'm well aware of my, uh, that my social abilities will be tested if I'm in that sort of mega work mode. And I have to be very careful what I say to whom and to whom I say it. Right, right. Because then the benevolent the, the benevolence turns to malevolence very quickly if you do that. <laughs> Why well, your boss, your director, you know, these people, there's a very clear hierarchy in my yeah. work. And and you do have to be um, you have to be conscious of that. Luckily, I had a corporate um, a, a job that was even more corporate than what I do now in, in as a computer programmer. And so I'm very well versed in the uh, the fact that. I'm in a hierarchy and that my opinions are not required. Nobody's particularly interested. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, sort of to speak when spoken to. Now I have a little bit too much personality to completely keep it in the bag, but I very much do try to read the audience 
and being a little older helps you you're better at reading the audience better at holding in the emotions when necessary and um and hopefully get a little time on the base to to express whatever it is i need to express has it always been this way for you has it always been the bass playing needs to happen and your territorial about that you never put it down for a period of time um not since i've been playing bass i um i mean when i was in school i mean cuz i've been playing bass longer than i've been a woman i was you know still uh i was 14 when i picked up the bass i played piano before that um so even in school there was you know, I was often in a band and having to go to practice and you go to school and go to practice and, you know, study and practice it, you know, it's been, it's been a balancing act that, that I've, I've felt was, um, worked for me in a positive way. I think I, I really came across though, something interesting, which was I took a year off school after high school and I just focused on playing in bands and I felt like something was missing then too. Interesting. It's like the intellectual part of me felt a little under, <laughs> under, you know, utilized or, or just not exercised, you know, I'm sure I could have found a way, but it, it helped my decision to go on to, to UCLA to get a degree um, because uh, it was either that or get a job. And at that time, I was uh, I had a lux luxury of getting to choose and having some support from my uh, parents um, to continue my schooling. Um, but it was interesting. So, so I learned this, the fact that this balance was real and that actually both sides were important. Yeah, because to undernourish the intellectual side of things, um, it wasn't enough just to be an artist. You also had to engage. It might be now, but right here. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I could be fine retired now. Yeah. You know, at sixty, yeah. um, I'm looking forward to being retired. My husband is retired. I envy that. I look forward to it. I absolutely support him in doing it, but um, but I'm looking forward to that time, and and I am definitely enjoying my time off more and more. You know, so so the it's shifted a little, but 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 I do get, I have learned about myself that I need that balancing act. That's probably why when I am off, my days are so structured. You know, there's exercise time and there's base time and there's, you know, so sometimes some social interactions and there's you know it's all very structured. Yeah, yeah. I'm a but, control freak. I'll admit. You no, know, you're. <laughs> You're not. But what you're saying is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, which is that I have become very painfully aware that at 51, that time is time is finite, right? And and when we were when we were in our 20s, it seemed infinite. It really did. Absolutely. Um, you know, like death and and the idea of time being finite almost felt abstract to me. Um, but now I'm, it's very clear to me that it's finite. And it's very clear that if you want to get things done, you don't, you don't waste the time that you have. Well, in my teens, I was clear that I was going to be dead by 25, but, <laughs> but that, you know, those ideas shifted as I be, got into my twenties. Yeah. 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 I was a miserable teenager and 20 something, you know, I was not happy. I was a very angsty teenager and very, um, 
you know, in touch with my, I thought I was a depressive uh, type personality and, and, and I um, wallowed in things a bit. Um, so I thought that the only solution was to not, not survive my twenties. Um, but, um, but that did change. It also feels when we're that age, it does feel almost kind of romantic to be that, to have that sort of tragic outlook for yourself, that sort of Plathian kind of thing. Um, I don't, I mean, it, it wasn't calculated right. you know, like that. I really was unhappy. I, you know, I hit, I hit about 40 and the light bulb kind of went on that I'm not, I'm not, that's not who I am. I thought that's who I was. I thought that was just life, you know, and, and it, and it isn't. And, um, it was, or, or I allowed it to be, or however you want to put it. But, um, so, so yeah, it didn't, uh, time didn't feel infinite for me uh, very young. Um, but I know what you're saying this, the, I think more what happened was that prior, what was important, what's the priority became clearer mm -hmm. and what's not important and what's eating up energy and time that isn't important became clearer. I see. You're right. Right. Because the feelings that you had as a young woman were real. Those, those were real feelings. Um, yeah. And I wrote, I wrote, and I, I wrote songs at that time expressing that angsty stuff. I still write sad, tragic songs. So yeah. I'm in yeah. touch with that part of myself. I'm really interested to hear about, about that moment when you turned 40, where you kind of went, Eh, like it's a lot of effort to, to be doing that full time. Is that kind of what it what wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't a, a momentary realization. I just know it was around that time. I think I just at around 40, I was able to look kind of and say, oh, you know, I was really miserable and I did think that's who I was. But but look at what's, you know, I was able to see that 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 had shifted, you know, over time. Uh, so I was, that was when the, the, the revelation that I wasn't just a depressive period, that wasn't all of who I was. Um, but I don't know how exactly it happened. It just happened, you know, and age is like that, you know, you, you have a set of experiences and, and maybe you just start to realize that the painful experiences have, have a place, but you can't let them, you know, just own you. Uh, and maybe I just got old enough that, that the pain could have be given a spot without given the whole shebang right no we don't give it the spotlight full time it just is it's like it makes a cameo and then it goes away and it comes back or it doesn't i mean i do think that that life is about holding those happinesses and those sadnesses together and letting them coexist because i think that they're they need to so you have that balance and that understanding of which one you know what each one is well, absolutely. Yes. And, and sometimes even, I mean, the truth is I was so depressed and, and seeing a therapist at one time, they did put me on Prozac. And one thing I will say about that is that it, I mean, it artificially created this happiness. And for me, the interesting thing, I was not on it for long, but I then knew what happy felt like. Oh. And so it became a little easier 
when there was an inkling of that to grab hold a little more. Like it almost made me a little more aware of what that was. Like I, as if I had had no idea what was that was until, until it was sort of created for me. And then I was able to, to be a little better at uh, glomming onto those little things, you know, because that's what anyone will teach you, right? Is be grateful for the little joyous things that are so easy to just gloss over. Right. And focus on the miserable schedule on this movie, you know, but instead you can say, wow, there's these cool people I'm getting to work with right now, or, or wow, my bed feels great when I get home or whatever, you know, you got to pay attention because you can, the human condition is somewhat focusing on the negative, unless you practice that muscle of, of fucking gratitude, I guess. Right. Right. And you, it seems like you've also figured out how to feed the, the areas of your life that, that give you joy. Well, and this is that, you know, finding your priorities, right? This is, um, this is paying enough attention and, and being self-reflective enough to, to notice, huh, you know, I like to do that. And you know what, one of the things that causes me a lot of discomfort is that stuff, you know, right. and, and to, to, as you said, shine the spotlight on the stuff that, that brings me, you know, some, some joy or some peace or, or whatever, is desired in that in that moment. Are you intuitively? I'm guessing that you're an introvert, but I, am I right? I call myself antisocial. I do very well one on one. Yeah. I do not like uh, groups. I'm not comfortable in groups, even groups of people that I'm close to. You know, a family gathering of people I I like and I generally am close to. I can I can only tolerate that for so long. So so yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm an, I like my time to myself. I um I love working from home. I hope it continues. Um <laughs> and uh so yes, totally uh totally a a die hard yeah, leave me in my little home with my family and 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 just go away. Yeah, just go away. And I think also, I think that most creative people, certainly the ones that I've spoken to for the last couple of years on this show, um, will always say, oh no, I'm an introvert. I've never had someone who is a singer of a band who have said, no, I'm an extrovert. I mean, I, no one has ever said that, which is so unusual to be a performer and to be well, I think I noticed this first. I was in a band called Black Flag and the singer, Henry Rollins, is an extreme introvert. And of course, people think he's just an asshole because he doesn't want to talk to 25 people before the show or after the show and, and just, you know, regale people with stories. You right. know, he, he can do that if that is the show and he does spoken word and he's amazing at it, but he's an introvert. And, and the expectation of the audience is that those people you're talking about, those front people, though, you know, are supposed to be social and open and friendly and, you know, party. <laughs> But I agree with you that there's certainly a set of us who um, who seek, I mean, come on, ultimately, how am I going to express myself if I'm in, you know, a, a 
social situation. I have to break it down to me in, in a room <laughs> with my vase or with a pen, right? I mean, when you write, you have to um, you have to strip yourself down to get to the meat of what you're trying to say and and to say it. And I think people also have expectations of someone like Henry Rollins. Um, people will look at him and have this romantic idea of who he is in that he is probably that guy all the time, which is not even sustainable if you think about that just logically for four seconds. Like, how could he possibly be like that? Um, he's, he's a very funny guy, you know, the truth is. But that's not going to necessarily come across in all contexts, right? And and I think that it's it's like, I know some, my ex-husband, Mike Watt, he is he can tell stories and hold court like nobody's business but that doesn't mean that's the whole thing about who he is like he's he's also got a very you know private part you know and i think people do think oh he's so open and social and what a what an amazing happy joyous guy or whatever you know and there's a lot more to the picture of course of course yeah I would be worried if there wasn't exactly well I you know there are people possibly actors who who have honed the craft of presenting a social front and and maybe actually like the like the feedback they get in a social situation actually feel filled up in a social situation there are those people who who actually gain joy from the attention and the and the um you know the feedback they get they exist i'm sure they do they do you know what's really funny is i taught a class at saint mary's and i and i was done and i was walking i went to my car i had a class in another hour so i thought i'll sit in my car and read and i felt myself turning back into myself from professor green to just alex right and Mm -hmm. and one of my students from a year prior knocked on my window to say hi and sort of caught me sort of like almost like stop right I was I was sort of like melting that persona away and I was like oh my god who am I right now to how do I do this and I remember feeling like I was I was like the incredible Hulk turning back into Banner you know and it was like I don't want you to see me like this but what can I do um it's, it's a weird feeling and, and I think that there's a there is a kind of privacy of when you kind of um, you need to sort of take a beat and just sort of turn back into yourself from that performative moment. And it's so hard. I mean, when I'm working a show that we're working long, long hours and we're on the stage or something and it's like, you know, two in the morning, we've been there since nine in the morning, you know, and, and, and it's just going and going and you have to still have that smile and still be kind to those around you and still be listening and paying attention and contributing and, uh, and and as you say, you know you need that break, but it's not coming, and it's not up to you. Right? Because <laughs> if you start wind- if you start winding down, and and you know, and someone approaches you, and you're in the winding down, like I was, it's like that's a really awkward moment because you got to reboot quickly. Well, the mixing stage is such a weird combination of extremely boring for someone like me and then all attention on you and and snap too because they'll be mixing along and I'll just be kind of zoning out and then and then there'll be a dialogue issue which is is my part of the work and everyone will turn and look at me right 
and I've got to like respond and like, or fix it or something. And um, so it, it's a very strange part of you that you have to sort of, I am, I am here, I, you know, and, and yet you have but sometimes hours where nobody does turn to you. So you can, you know, you, I can have the headphones on maybe, and I can, I can possibly be, be sort of, you know, as you say, sort of getting into myself, but then boom, yeah, boom, <laughs> they right. all turn to you and you've got a snap to, yeah. Cause what are you supposed to say? I'm sorry. I was just powering down. <laughs> give, me a, <laughs> give me one second. I was just, you know, looking at pictures of little cuddly dogs and like, <laughs> right. and, and being in my little lonely, happy place. <laughs> Bye.
Well, I, I would imagine also that you are, because you are so compartmentalized and in, in many ways ritualized with how you do your work, I would imagine that you've been very productive and that you must have a lot of songs that you, that you're, right? Yes. I mean, I'm not prolific. Don't get me wrong, because uh, remember what we were saying, uh, sometimes uh, I'll have a half hour, right? So, so I have, I've had to, you know, push them along in this sort of very slow, methodical way. But yes, over the years, there is this sort of body of work. Uh, and my brother was aware of this body of work because he 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 and I get together and we polish on songs and and because of that you know he said to me you know kitten robot records wants to put out a solo record and it was like for whatever reason and he has said before that I should put stuff out it was the time was right I'm I'm 60 sounded like a good thing to do put out a solo record at 60 um and there was this set of songs that sort of tell a story that sort of I in my mind were in my little playlist at home they were grouped there and the other songs were not grouped mm -hmm. um so for whatever reason that moment in time there was this oh you know yeah this stuff I could see releasing and I said yes and it was and it clearly clearly to you that was a song cycle it was like this is almost like a novelistic beginning middle and end well the the it's it's chronological the first song was written maybe 13 years ago and the last song we were actually finishing this year and so a lot of songs happened during that time that aren't part of this mm. but they they were a natural grouping, a natural telling uh, of a tale of love and loss. And um, it just clicked and, and, and he asked at the right time and they were so kind to offer to do this, to actually ask me to do this. I, I don't think I would have done it without you know, that little push from outside because it was never my intention to release uh, the joy for me is expressing myself and creating this stuff and I get so much out of that that I wasn't sure it was that important to you know say hey I did this thing right <laughs> that's not that's the social part of it in a way I guess but yeah because it's almost like you gotta wear two hats like right? you're the artist and you are the sort of business-minded person of hey maybe this is something I could actually release to the world the artist doesn't think about that <laughs> It's sort of like well, I mean, I guess some do, some want that feedback. Yeah. You know, I just, I think, you know, frankly, I think of the music as kind of strange. I think I expected people to uh, react, not necessarily positively. So, so it wasn't important to me to get that feedback, certainly. Yeah. yeah. So, so not knowing what, the outcome was going to be which we never do right but uh it just it seemed like uh, just making myself vulnerable telling this very vulnerable story i i can imagine an author going through this right this is a very personal story and i'm shoving it out into the world and who knows what the response will be it, will it be rejected out of hand or and then how will people who read it react and yeah oof Oof is right. And there are times where, you know, I'll write a new book and my editor will say, I loved it. We need to cut about 30,000 words. And I'm kind of like, oh, what? 
<laughs> wow. Right. I watch I watch directors go through this because I it, I see the sort of director's cut version, right? Yeah. And I work on that. And then of course, by the time it's complete, editing has happened and more editing has happened. And, and I've watched the difficulty and sometimes the potentially the failure to strip it down enough or this or the the realization and and some scene will be cut out and i'll be like but that scene <laughs> you know? yeah so i go through that without having to be the editor um making those decisions but i watch it and 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 it's creatively amazing the way sometimes the story is held together without pieces i thought were critical it's incredible i, I have found that much as I kick and scream, the editor is like 99% right. Um, and so so I, and I only bring that up because I'm curious for you, who acted as the editor in the process for you? Like who was it your brother who said like, maybe more here, less here? Like who made those decisions or could you wear no, that? I am the absolute editor okay. completely. My brother, it's funny, his style of music is almost the, the polar opposite of mine. Paul writes very lush things and layers, a lot of sounds and it's very full. And, and my stuff, I strip it down and down. I strip out, I'm brutal, I, I edit out guitar things i i cut out drums i mix things i i, I for whatever reason and i and i think i'm starting to get a clue about this the spaces and the holes tell so much of the emotion to me and i think it happened quite early on i have this band i played in for many years with those called dose with my ex-husband and he uh and it's very stripped down. It's two bass players, and I sing sometimes. And and I I think what happened was there were times when we would do a cover song of like Billie Holiday, something a very emotional song, and I would be singing it in an, to an audience, and, and I would feel so vulnerable right my voice not supported by anything anywhere close in the frequency range right the bass is way underneath and 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 the vulnerability and the emotion that felt so palpable in this case being something that somebody else wrote but i think i started to really latch on to that that the that the minimalistic thing actually is pretty powerful and that the 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 delicate voice in in the silence was somewhat you know sad and 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 that emotion could happen in those spaces so so i am very much uh the editor paul will sometimes uh, he's a great sounding board in that way is it done does it need to be, have something added what if i do this no <laughs> what if i you know so so we have that back and forth and he helps me to know, uh, is it complete or does it, you know, maybe it needs this, maybe it needs that. Um, but I'm, he is the one, you know, suggesting additions and I am tending to be the subtractor. It's interesting that, you know, and I always think that, that you're right, that there's, there's so much wisdom and so much can be revealed in space, in the spaces. I think cinematically someone like David Lynch Though I don't know if the movies always work, but those those spaces in the, the he has these moments where 
space is very clearly pronounced. And mm. those moments are so impactful. Um, even if I don't understand them, <laughs> they're, they're still really impactful. Well, or or the wide open spaces in, you know, some old Western and sometimes the, the scenes, right? The big open space can sometimes make you feel the loneliness of the single character in that huge space, right? So, yeah. so it is utilized and, and, and it just took me a while to actually put put my words together on it but it's been something kind of in in my mode of thinking for a, for a long time yeah it's a the the idea of being minimalist somewhat minimalist um it, did that surprise you that you found yourself going you know sort of doing away and dispensing with what you deemed extra and breaking it down to this simple it's it has felt natural now for a long time and so no i mean the decision to do dose was like we we were two pretty powerful personalities with mm. with you know base chops that we really wanted to you know go at and so we decided well there wasn't really any room for anything else <laughs> if there were two of us we're gonna be going at it right yeah. so um so very early, I mean, this was 87, you know, when we started doing these base dueling bases and, and, and then more and more as we wrote the songs, the issue was creating halls and, and filling, finding the spaces as the other bass player and stuff. And so was, I started writing a lot with the intertwining bases and, and finding the holes and making the holes. And it just, it was completely natural and um and appealing as as it went and and mike was a big factor in that he was stripping things down he was acting as editor uh I, i'll never forget that he had this one song that he wrote um and i was i was to write a, another baseline to go with it right so i wrote this baseline i was really proud of it and I, you know got together with him and 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 it was like way too busy in his mind and that baseline i wrote i was like i so in love with it that i turned it into another song <laughs> oh wow you know I, I i reformatted it turned into another song and then you know we structured something much more uh minimalist to to complement uh his vision the songwriter you know music and bands are not democracies <laughs> In my mind, it's very clear that the songwriter is defining something or has a vision or has something they're trying to express. And, and it's kind of our job to, to support that, not to, you know, say, well, this is how I go and, and slam right. my vision on top of your song, but rather to, to figure out what that intention is and, and try to, to support it. So so that was a, a growing learning phase that went on for quite some time that just helped me understand what worked for me yeah and even even the fact that doing it alone is i mean of course you have your band that you send things to but even constructing it alone is a kind of also a spare approach right yeah oftentimes once i've laid down um two bases and and the voice to my mind it's somewhat done and mm -hmm. i'll go to you know to to my brother's place and, and uh, to paul's studio and and he'll say do, do you think maybe we should get some get dave to do some drums <laughs> you know and i'll be like 
Um, I always love actually sending my songs to Dave, the drummer, because he he does a lot of music. So he gets music sent to him and and write and does drums, and he finds my stuff extremely difficult because he is working to find a way not to just layer something on and bang all over it. You know, he's super conscious of how do I delicately introduce drums without um, taking away anything? And uh, so usually when the suggestion is get some drums, yes, absolutely. Let's get some drums. Let's see how it <laughs> is because, because of him. Now, if it was like, hey, let's give it to this other drummer, that probably wouldn't work. It's only because this guy gets me, this guitar player gets me, um, my brother gets me and and the, there's a woman who played violin and sang uh, some on this record and she has that tendency to do exactly what I'm saying to feel what's there and to find a way to to fit into it without turning it into something else. How has your relationship to your instrument changed over the years? Do you feel that it is, that it's something you can master or do you feel that it is, I'm just curious to know like when you approach it, do you approach it the same way you did at 25 or is your understanding of it deepened in a way that you approach it differently? That's a great question. I, um, at some point, and again, it's hard to, to say when exactly, it became very clear to me that, that the bass was sort of an extension of me. Now because it's such a physical instrument yeah. um, there's somewhat of a, a physical battle and that does not stop there are some players who don't struggle who don't have to practice I have to practice my hands won't move if I don't keep my hands uh, in shape so so there's there's sort of two aspects I always say about this and so when you say mastering I think I'll never master the physical endeavor. I'd have to go back to practicing five, 10 hours a day. I would have to play so much and, and I'm not sure my hands could do it. Um, so I'll, I'll never be able to, because there's sort of two aspects. I got to my hands and, and can my hands do? And then there's the mind and, and what am I trying to express? And, and, and can my hands do what then my mind is trying to get it to? So, so I think I've, what I've mastered is this, this is my tool. I don't feel limited by it. This is how I express myself. And I, I find it not that hard really when I'm feeling an, an emotion or I or have a word or phrase or something I want to write about it, it's relatively easy to me to just start playing my bass and have it start feeling like the music is now helping me to express it or capturing that that idea or that phrase so so that part feels very natural mm. it does not feel natural to to actually play for an hour <laughs> that hurts it does not feel natural um to play really hard rock with drummers um so so there there's still always have felt like there were these physical limitations that i've struggled with most mightily in black flag which was a complete 
physical test. Yeah. But uh, and and those, of course, there's no drummer in those, and I, and I and I think that in some ways there was a relief in that um not having to to play necessarily that hard but it was a lot of complexity um so the hands had to to do a lot um but because of my editing tendency i don't write particularly complicated parts you know i don't i don't play to the edge of my ability when i'm asked to play at the edge of my ability my hands scream and my brain screams i have a friend uh devin hoff who is a stand-up bass player and he and i have a project called awkward and we he sent me a bartok piece and bartok is this composer he writes very complicated time signatures and and, and i sat and struggled with this both mentally and physically because devin is an amazing player and i'm not as capable physically as he is and in this case even the sort of mental part of getting my head around the time signatures and 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 sight reading this music was you know it was really um sort of out at the edge so so i'll never feel like i've mastered it because music is infinite right and the physical part is certainly impossible for me to master i'm i'm not that guy but um but there is something that's been kind of mastered, which is I can express myself through my bass, and I always will. <laughs> so yeah, you've you've figured out this this sort of dimension that you can occupy. It's, it reminds me, I'm a tennis player, and I and I know that I can't do the things I used to do before, but it's made me a better player because I won't try those things. I'll just do what I know I can do. And I can do those things now really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I, and I think it's smart to understand that and know like in many ways you can only become masterful in some regard when you know your limitations on the other end of it. Yeah, it's, it's um, some people wanna live on the edge of their abilities. I, however, am I'm competitive and I, and I um, don't like to look bad. I like to do things I do well. So yeah. I try not to put myself in a situation where I'm likely to fail. I get it. No, I totally understand it. And it's interesting how, I mean, Mike's bass playing has certainly changed over the years. He's deepened. I remember I saw him live with Firehose and I said, he's the kind of guy that like the bass just looks like he was born with it in his hands like literally mm -hmm. um his relationship to it spatially just looks so natural some people doesn't look like that um how would you how would you say how his playing has changed and does that influence you well he i think what i mean mike came from an extremely narrow perspective at first right i mean he was he played with d boone and in the minutemen and and that was his perspective and and then when he lost d boone it was like the rug was pulled out from under him and that was actually the start of doze i, I just wanted him to not quit bass really and and so i my idea was just to start to jam uh to try to get him to play and just to sit in his room and and play together and and have him stay connected to it um but i think for for mike collaborating with more people has been he has a tendency and i maybe shouldn't say this but but he'll get in his own way and and what has helped him is to have a lot of other people 
sort of bringing him new perspectives because he can he can get somewhat stuck in his idea of this is this is how it should be or or yeah. this is what this is how i play and and he keeps getting challenged right iggy told him to to play with a pick well that wasn't how he played right and and but you're gonna do this you gotta you know and i think that that um by continually having people um demand new things from him he evolves he also is you know a bass player much of the day every day you know he has not had to luckily and, and and amazingly he's been able to sort of earn a living if you will in music which is not not easy and, no. and he's he's worked incredibly hard at it but but he hasn't had to do the dance of of working a full-time job and and, and that, that oftentimes was a bit of a struggle in in dose because i felt like of being so competitive i didn't want to be treated like a lesser player and yet i wanted to be understood of what a struggle it was that i was working all day and didn't he know you know and right. so so um but the collaboration in dose in and in all these other things just i think has done a lot for him because because he needs that he needs feedback he needs to be um challenged and he needs to be you know told <laughs> and he need you know he needs all that you know alone in his room isn't what's best for mike yeah and that's right and so that that is a very specific approach where some people need that collaborative um sort of impetus to get them to be to to, to evolve right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas um I have all, I've, I'm like you, where I can sort of do my work in my room. And um, even though I, I, I am extroverted in a, in a, in a sense, um, but I do have that, that sort of side where, where I really want to work and do my stuff. And I think that the, it's a major difference in terms of your own musical evolution. Well, I think and, we challenge ourselves. Yes, that's right. And other people struggle with that more so they need others to challenge them. It's that simple, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, do you miss velocity at all in music do you miss that speed or do you are you happy to put that as, as, to side i mean i love all kinds of music right so so what i might listen to in my very eclectic you know set of playlists might surprise anyone but uh so in terms of what appeals to me i i uh i love speed but it, i guess to the simple answer is no because that didn't that that anger that rage that fury that punk rock uh speed expressed isn't as much of a of a need for me that isn't the thing i'm trying to express now i think my music is incredibly punk rock so don't get me wrong i'm a non-conformist i'm not doing music like anyone else that's exactly what punk rock is dose right. is very punk rock like i don't buy into the punk rock has to be fast but right. i will say that one of the main things that was attractive at first was that this rage was being expressed and again i love emotion being expressed so so there it was and it and it was an outlet and it was an important outlet that i needed and others needed and um and i don't need that exact outlet anymore 
I need these other outlets that, that are much more minimalist and, and emotionally and musically vulnerable and emotionally vulnerable. And, and I need to challenge people to feel something that they don't necessarily want to feel. Yeah, that's cool. And you said a while ago, early on, you said the music, you said it, you recognize it being kind of strange. Um, I'm curious to hear, I mean, of course, you can't control how it comes out, right? Like, I look at The New Yorker and I go, my poems don't look anything like what's in here, but I can't do anything about that. I can't write these, no. right? And I'm okay that's with That's not that. me. Yeah, that's it's not, not me. me. It's mm -hmm. not me. So your music comes out and you recognize it as being strange in the sense that it's not like anybody else, but you also recognize it as being uniquely you. Well, yeah. And like I said, when, when the goal was just to be, you know, in my room and to just build the music, there was never this need. The thing about if I had to try to make a living at music, I would have to try to conform to what people would want. And, yeah. and a long time ago, it became clear that the bonus, if there is one, to having a straight job is that my, no one gets to tell me what the music should be like. I, I watched my brother, he, he went off, to, he went to Northridge and studied music after high school. And I, and I watched the disappointment when he's being told what's good, you know, uh -huh. and, and he's making things that, that aren't being accepted as good maybe, you know, and, and, and just watching that, if you, you know, if you're trying to please others with your music, you, you lose this, this exact thing that is what I like about it, which is to express myself. So, so yeah, I mean, if, if tomorrow I was enraged, I might write a really fast song. So there's nothing about speed that I feel aside from it might be kind of hard for my hands, but, but I will express whatever it is. It just hasn't been exactly that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because I think that there is a kind of um, punk rock approach to minimalism. You know, I mean, like like John Cage. You, you could argue that's that's about as punk as it gets. Absolutely. Like I said, I, I don't think that there is a there shouldn't be rules to what we call punk rock. If anything, it should be those who break every perceived rule are the punk rockers, you know, the ones who don't, it's, it's so weird because punk rock has become so, you know, accepted and mainstream that is, what is punk rock is so confusing, right? It's like, how do I explain it? And, and in my universe, it's still that non-conformist part of me that says, I don't care what your rules are. Right. Oh, you want fast? Go get fast. It ain't here, you know? Right. You right. want me to scream? No. That's not going to happen. I. What's your recollection, by the way, of D. Boone? Was he? I mean, just in terms of, and I'm convinced that stories keep people alive. And um, and of course, he, of course, he's someone who is such a, a amazing figure, um, who just was gone way too soon. But what are your recollections of him as a as a musician, as a person? He just, you know, he he exuded a certain joy. Like he he did get that he could be happy up on stage hopping around with his guitar and uh and he did that in his in his personality with people too he was able to make you feel somewhat a part of you know and uh, one of the 
memories I have of him, and I don't know why, was that he just decided that he was going to this. He took this other girl and me and picked us up into the air, you know, and it wasn't to be show off strength. It, he was just having fun, you know, and it was like, hey, let's do this. Yeah. And, and he was just a big, you know, happy guy who, um, who expressed himself in his in his music and and he he had a lot of political ideas and his songs captured that and that was that was really cool to see and uh and him and mike together my word that was an incredible set of people i mean they could fight like nobody's business i remember we were they minuteman was opening for rem on a couple of shows so these were big shows so we were in georgia and i was i had joined i'd flown out to to join up or something and um and we we're backstage at this big place and mike and <laughs> mike and d boone are having a fight and they are literally backstage one in one room sitting like under a desk and the other in another room and they're not talking to each other they're not screaming but they're not talking to each other and it's like you guys gotta go on in a, in a little bit you know and the truth is that they they had that kind of connection where there was never any there was it was unconditional love right there was no real question that their friendship or camaraderie or their band nothing was at stake right they were just mad you know and they were just able to have that um and and somehow you know work through it and um it, it was it was so devastating when D Boone died. I was uh, I was visiting my mother. I was away from Los Angeles, and I was very close to Mike at the time. And it was sort of a new uh, new relationship. And and I and he called, and he and his voice, and and I was at my mom's. I I just felt so helpless, right? And all I could do, and my mom had, they had these pile of rocks that need moving and I just moved rocks and it was, it felt so good to like, I'm going to get the pile from there to there. And it was like, it was all I could do because I felt like I was going to explode. And I was so terrified for him knowing what this meant, you know, it was his livelihood. It was his best friend. And, um, and I worried that he quit, which is sort of how how those came about but but D Boone was uh someone who just left this big hole and and I watched the hole I wasn't close enough to him personally to to feel gutted myself by the loss other than watching it through Mike and and that told the whole story and I would guess D Boone was an extrovert he was he was a total <laughs> extrovert absolutely just yeah just an, uh, and loved the feedback loop. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny in a in a world that is so uncontrollable, the image of you moving those rocks, it's like I can control one pile to the next, right? Yeah. Like, like all yeah. I can manage. It's an incredible, it's an incredible image. Yeah. Um, are you in terms of with this project, are you thinking like, oh, maybe I'll do a bunch of these like are, are you thinking like hey i'll release a bunch of albums now now that, that the, are the floodgates do they feel like they're inching open i have absolutely no plans to um release a bunch of more albums uh like i said this was 
I was asked to do it and, and, and for whatever reason, it was the right thing at, in that moment. I, and I just don't know what will happen. I did just share on my on my Facebook page, I during the lockdown, people often ask, what did you do during the lockdown? And the truth is what I did was I, I learned to mix and master my friend Glenn, this guitar player's own record. And, and, and it just dropped on Bandcamp. Um, and I play bass on it and I and I sort of, you know, produced it with obviously with with his a great deal of his input, but I'm super proud of it. I worked really hard on it. I needed a project during the lockdown because because there wasn't any work work and I wasn't going anywhere. So I needed more like we talked about. I needed that sort of intellectual challenge on top of working on my own music. Um, so, I mean, I'm always going to play. I'm always going to write. I just don't know what will happen in terms of what everybody else will will experience right 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 i mean imagine i imagine like putting shows together might not hold much interest for you right now well i haven't played live in um in years right and uh and there's a part of me that wants to find a way to do something to to support this record but i don't know what's going to happen i i don't have any intention of touring i'll be clear yeah, about that uh so we'll see we'll see and are you still in touch with henry are you guys in touch or henry and i do occasionally exchange emails the last time i think i saw him was dose played a benefit that he asked us to play years and years ago but he will he will write me if there's something happening. I will write him. I wrote him recently because Dave Grohl was having me do this documentary. He was doing this get in the van kind of documentary. And he asked if I had photos in the van. Uh, because back then, you know, nobody had their iPhone handy. So so there weren't a lot of photos in the van. But anyway, I, I contacted him to see if he had anything that I didn't, you know, have or know about. But uh, so we're in touch in terms of he he wrote me when when Fury Road won the Academy Award. This article came out saying I had won an Academy Award, which is not totally accurate. I was part of a team. I don't have the hardware, but um, <laughs> but he wrote. He said I heard you got an Oscar. You know, so we have that sort of um, cordial acquaintanceship where we would write to each other if something was going on in our lives but um but we don't hang out yeah yeah i i love what you've done and i didn't know what to expect because i kind of thought oh this will be really interesting and i listened and i just thought i just think it's so beautiful and so specific and it just feels like something real to me and i love it i love what you've done thank um, you so much yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful work and it's um it hit me in just the way I, I needed to be hit. So, um, well, that's the intention, as I said. Yeah. So, mazel on that. Um, Thank and you it's so much. It's just so fun to talk to you. And I appreciate you talking about everything with me and being so open and honest. I just, I've had so much fun chatting with you. It's been really nice. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you got something uh, that you wanted to, to hear about. I think, I think people are going to love this. I hope you'll come back on in the future. I will. Okay, for cool. Sure. All 
was so cool. What an awesome conversation with Kira. Get her new album, the self-titled debut, just called Kira, and uh, get it through Kitten Robot. All you got to do is go to kittenrobot.com and uh, order it up in any format that makes you comfortable. And while you're there, pick up some stuff by Josie Cotton or the Candy Whips or Ukrainian Cowboy. There's some fun stuff in the Kitten Robot store. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. We do stay on the air 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, calendar math. It all adds up to us never being off the air. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can also follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Don't be shy. Stereo Embers the Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. I defy you to find one we are not on. And now you're probably going to do that and I'm going to be embarrassed. But if you do, tell me what it is and we'll get on there. At any rate, in the meantime, go to the platform that you use, subscribe, rate and review the podcast and tell all your friends. We would certainly appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for listening week in and week out to our program. Oh, and one quick correction before we go. My intern, Holly, has pointed out to me that I said Kira's band with Mike Watt was called DOS, when in fact it was DOS, which means I'm an idiot. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Holly, for correcting me. My God, how did I screw that one up? She's shaking her head. She has no idea how I did. What? I know it's only three letters, but (laughs) hey, remember, I'm giving you school credit for this. Uh, All right, let's close the show with a longer listen to The Ghost from Kira's fabulous self-titled debut album. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Roaming. 